Over time, Monday Thursday has become for me the most meaningful of all the holidays in the church calendar. Beginning over 20 years ago when I first encountered its rituals, singing second soprano in the choir led by its then new director, Jim Bonamani. It took me a while to come to terms with what I was finding so meaningful, but here's what I think it is. I'm moved, maybe even reassured, by the way this ritual service requires us to encounter darkness. The stripping of the altar gets things started, taking us, or so it seems to me, to the unadorned, undisguised sense of foundation. The ritual dimming of the lights, extinguishing even the candlelight in this space, allows us to feel darkness deeply, because maybe that's exactly where we need to be in order to prepare for the light. But for now, let's get back to Soup Kitchen. As you hopefully know, Soup Kitchen has been around for decades at St. James. Many of its original volunteers are still in action. Over the past two years of pandemic, however, the ranks of volunteers has grown exponentially and reassuringly with a, to me, astonishing collection of young people who seem to have come out of the woodwork during the pandemic, 200 or 300 or more of them. Friday Soup Kitchen persists with fabulous leadership from Father John. Thursday Food Pantry persists thanks to the tireless work of Kathy Helm. And now those events have been complemented by a robust shower event on Saturday mornings, a second soup kitchen on Tuesday evenings, and a wonderful group of volunteers who show up on Thursday evenings to do the actual cooking. St. James School is even in on the deal. The kids' families have become a reliable source of donated clothing for the shower project. We are even as we speak in negotiation to offer up our kitchen scraps to their new compost project. With such rich support, we've turned what began as a buffet line in the parish hall on Fridays into a social clubhouse at all our events. For pandemic safety, we stay outside in the courtyard or in the parking lot. We set up lounge chairs and round tables. We offer appetizers and paper cups. We provide restroom access, charging stations, a lending library, an art table. We've conducted vaccine clinics throughout the pandemic. Last Saturday, volunteers even put together a pickup band out in the parking lot, and several of our unhoused neighbors stepped up to the electric keyboard to show off awesome musical skills. But in the spirit of Maundy Thursday, let's pause in our celebrating for a minute and gaze at the real darkness. Who are our unhoused neighbors? Where do they come from? What is it like to be living on the streets of Los Angeles? We know from the official annual homeless count that somewhere north of 60,000 people are living unhoused in Los Angeles County, 60,000, up 14% from the year before. Some people say homeless people come to Los Angeles for the weather, but the truth of the matter is we create our own population of homelessness. The long-term lack of affordable housing in Los Angeles creates a relentless faucet of people falling newly into homelessness in Los Angeles every day. The government defines rent burden 
as a household that spends more than 30% of its income on rent. In Los Angeles, over 60% of people fall into that vulnerable category, one of the highest rates in the country. And what do we know about what it's like to live out there? The health department reports that 1,267 people died homeless over the course of one year. Most common causes of death may not be surprising, untreated heart disease, traffic injuries, homicide, but the leading cause of death for people living on the street is overdose. Now, substance use disorder is a complicated topic, but my personal and strong opinion is that no one chooses to get entangled with addiction. The stress of the street, the uncertainty, the humiliation renders one supremely vulnerable to the allure of illegal drugs that are sadly widely available in this city. Drugs that mitigate fear, drugs that keep you alert enough at night to monitor your belongings, and then other drugs that render you peaceful enough in the day to catch a few winks of sleep. But the drugs are nasty and unregulated and more dangerous right now than ever before. And available drug treatment, if you can even find the strength to come clean, is simply non-existent in anywhere the volume that we need. And to talk about homelessness in our neighborhood requires that we talk about mental, health, mental illness. Certainly at our events, the majority, maybe as many as 60, 70% come to us struggling with mental health issues. We know now more than ever before how mental health impacts brains physiologically, how medications can help to remedy, how meaningful activities can make a difference but care reaches only the lucky few. A lack of providers, a lack of therapeutic settings leaves us a tragically huge number of people with mental health disorders untended. The director of the Department of Mental Health confesses publicly that Los Angeles has become a kind of open air mental health hospital. All of us volunteers have come to know how hard it can be to be present for people with mental health crisis. We try to stay prepared by learning our lessons from trauma-informed care. We acknowledge feelings before facts. We try not to raise our voices even when we're upset or fearful in the face of difficult behaviors. And we look for space to bargain rather than default to judgment. We depend deeply on the kind and patient security guards, Anna and Juan, who help us to stand by our commitment to treat even the most troubled of our guests with boundaries defined by respect and dignity. So to fill out the picture, I'd like to just share a couple of stories with you, stories that show how we've learned about the darkness of homelessness and how we've strived to turn at least some of that darkness into shards of light. Before the pandemic, we used to make the rounds of the bus stops around St. James, taking to-go bags to those we encountered. That's how we met Morris, a thin 70-year-old African-American man, and we invited him to join us at Soup Kitchen. He showed up regularly after that, so the night he showed up sick, we noticed right away. He was feverish, with slurred speech, and obviously weak. He said he just wanted something to drink, but we insisted on taking him to the ER. 
There, they diagnosed sepsis that had begun with gangrene of his feet. They admitted him urgently to the intensive care unit, and the doctors were able to save his life by amputating a couple of his toes. But all that medical attention resulted in his spending most of the next 12 months in rehab. Sarah Jane and I visited with him often, and we got to know him well. He is illiterate, we learned, unable to read, and barely able to write his own name. He had been removed from his mother's custody when he was six or seven years old. In foster care, as he tells it, it he, that no one ever sent him to school. He ended up in an institution for troubled children during his teen years and eventually found a job as a butler for a wealthy couple who traveled the world on business. But when they died, he was back on his own, unskilled, unschooled, and on the street. During that year of recuperation, Sarah Jane and I were able to help him navigate all the myriad signatures and Byzantine documents needed to apply for housing and he was finally able to move into his own one-room apartment in a building not far from here, where case managers continue to support him. And by a small miracle, he's recently reunited with a daughter he had fathered, and she is now his main caretaker. Bob makes his living as a handyman. He's undocumented and hardworking. When his rental situation fell apart, he moved into his van and that's when we first met him, because now he needed a way to get showers and find meals. Then his van got stolen, and he had lost everything. Still, he came to showers, and that's how we learned about his broken arm. Trying to avoid getting hit by a car, he had stumbled and fallen against the curb, and the force of the fall resulted in a bad fracture of his right arm. But he thought he could tough it out, since he had no insurance, and no way to pay for anything. One of the volunteers that day is a wonderful EMT who works at Cedars on weekends. That EMT crafted a splint out of cardboard and a bit of duct tape we found down in the church basement. He called his colleagues over at Cedars and found out they did have a team of social workers who specialize in helping unhoused people. We made sure Bob got a hot shower and clean clothes with only one functioning hand, he needed help tying his shoes, but then we got him over to Cedars. Later, we got a really cool message from the orthopedic surgeon saying that splint had saved Bob from surgery, making the repair so much easier. Since he since managed to get back on his feet, he's back at work and inside. Finally, about Louisa. We've known Louisa for almost five years now, since way before the pandemic. She's 30-something. She was pregnant when we first met her and pregnant again this last year. She says she's been pregnant six times, and maybe that's true. Certainly, that aspect of life is not always in their control for young women living on the street. She has long periods of lucidity, marked by terribly difficult episodes of anger, disruption and psychosis. She's been in tenuous engagement with counseling, and of course, whenever she's given birth, she's been engaged with healthcare providers. We've referred her to street outreach teams, but so far not much has ever really made a dent in her sad, sad journey. When she's in the dark place, we volunteers lean on our trauma-informed skills I mentioned earlier, looking for a way 
to bargain her back to a calm space. Louise has put on a lot of weight and it's been hard to find shoes that fit her swollen feet. But a couple months ago, she admired the super beautiful sandals on one of our volunteers, open-toed sandals with silver sequins. The volunteer, without hesitating for one minute, took off her sandals and put them on Louisa's feet. Louisa still comes to Friday kitchen and to Saturday showers, still wearing those beautiful sandals. So relationship, that's how I would describe the soup kitchen light in the darkness. By accepting the complexities, we can be present in ways that people can feel, in ways that offer dignity and respect. While we wait for the fixing of fragmented social services, while we advocate for the assurance of affordable housing, while we fervently hope for better designed mental health services, we do what we can with the tools at hand. And make no mistake about it, you are part of the community that nurtures these relationships. You, the community of St. James, by showing up here, by your contributions to the coffer, by setting the stage with this congregation's long history of diversity and kindness. That word mandi, I hear it comes from the French for commande, for the commandment articulated at this Passover meal. Love one another. In this community, together, we make it possible.